0: Hello, friends. How's it going? And a hearty all right for the first Looking Sideways podcast of 2018, episode 29 to be precise, and the second part of my Australian omnibus recorded during my month long trip to Sydney at the tail end of 2017. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, I am back in the UK now. Got back last night, and yeah, got to say, bit of a come down. After uh, a month of uh, beautiful sunshine and surf, I um, after recording this, I'm going to go and surf at Shoreham. And uh, yeah, after board shorts and a Rashi, it's going to be five mil hood gloves, boots in, uh, in onshore windswell. So wish me luck. Anyway, as I said in the intro to the last episode, during my trip to Sydney, I was really keen to interview key players in the Australian surf community. And my guest for this episode, Lane Beachley, certainly ticks that box. I'm sure anybody with a passing knowledge of pro surfing over the last two decades is going to know who Lane is. But in case you don't, then check this CV out. She's a seven times world champion, six of those wins being consecutive. She's a big wave pioneer who's charged at places such as Ours, Sunset, Waimea, and Pipeline. And then since retirement in 2008, she's kept equally busy as a speaker as Head of Surfing Australia, the first female head at that, and as founder of the Lane Beachley Foundation. No wonder she's referred to as the first lady of Australian surfing by the Sydney Morning Herald. And, as I discovered, she's also a supremely generous and welcoming person, something evidenced by the way this interview came about. So I explained this on Instagram, but in case you're not following me on there, well, you should be anyway, at We Look Sideways, if not. Basically, the way this one came about came from me cold calling Lane, really. I was in Manly for a few days during my trip and I was sat on the beach and I was thinking, ah, Lane Beach, she lives in Manly. I wonder if she'd be up for it. So without really thinking too much of it, I looked up her website, mailed the web form and uh, yeah, just sent her a message saying, I'm in Manly, fancy coming on the podcast. Not five minutes later, she replied saying, yeah, sounds great. Here's my address and I'll see you on, on Saturday. Now, I mean, this is Lane Beachley we're talking about, asking me round to the house she shares with Kirk Pengley from In Excess, the man played on kick for crying out loud. So obviously myself and Boog, who I was over there with, took her up on it, went round, not too sure what to expect, but yeah, they really couldn't have been more welcoming. And as if that wasn't enough, the conversation that subsequently unfolded was really brilliant, as you'll hear. So many highlights in this one, it's difficult to know where to start, but it's fascinating hearing Lane describe the unhappiness of those years when she was clocking up world titles and pushing herself to ever more punishing levels in an effort to find acceptance and self-validation through ever more lofty goals and achievement. What is it, she says at one point, when I asked her how it felt to win those world titles, there was no consistency of joy, she says, despite those world-beating achievements. Equally fascinating is her explanation of how age, perspective and physical setbacks catalyzed a permanent change and set her on the path she's on today. Now, the journey as metaphor for self-enlightenment really is one of the most overdone tropes in modern culture, as anybody who's watched X Factor will certainly attest. But, and don't hate me, listening to Lane describe the yes journey she's undertaken from non-more fierce competitor pushing herself to the limit at the expense of her own self-worth to somebody willing to pitilessly examine themselves to achieve internal change is extremely inspiring stuff, as I'm sure you, you'll agree as you listen to this one. So, yeah, enough hype from me. Let's get on with it. Here is my chat with the legendary Lane Beachley on Life as the Lesson. Enjoy. Hey, Lane. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. Ah,
1: oh, thanks for coming over. I apologise to all your listeners who are listening to planes and helicopters and things going overhead, but that's the beauty of recording outside.
0: Ah, uh, they're used to it. I, <laughs> I was uh, pretty precious when I started this about, well, yeah. yeah, I wanted it all done in studios and to make sure there's no noise, but I realised no one, no one really cares. Oh, that's good. Yeah. People right. seem to really like the atmospheric ones anyway. So. And uh, certainly an atmospheric spot you've got here.
1: Yeah, we're sitting amidst a tropical oasis in our backyard. Yes, we have a big, beautiful, lush, in, um, indigenous garden here in Sydney. And it's full of succulents and palm trees. And yeah, it's a beautiful spot to relax.
0: Beautiful. You've been here, what, you said 10 years? 10 years. yeah. And you're from Manly, obviously.
1: Yeah, so I grew up at the southern end of the beach and I've moved all the way to the northern end of the beach. It's kind of like a graduation process. Is it? Yes. Is
0: this this where everybody would like to kind of end up?
1: This is the pocket of paradise right here, yeah.
0: And you can check the surf?
1: You can check the surf from my front yard. Yeah, fresh water. Yeah, Unfortunately, the bamboo of my neighbour's place has grown out to cover the most of the beach. So, and freshwater beach breaks independently. So, yeah, the northern end is not a reflection of what's happening at the southern okay, end, and right. vice versa. So, you
0: do, you do need to actually leave and go. And well,
1: have a look. you know what? When I look in my garage, which is right here behind us, I've got about thirty-six boards in there. Yeah, and it's so quite I a have. Quiver. I don't really have any excuses.
0: Yeah. So you I just could-
1: p- pick a board, any board, and go
0: you got all bases covered in there, are not you? I do. So, how is that's, today?
1: That's a third of the quiver.
0: Oh, really? The other
1: th- two thirds is down in another garage down the street. Okay, wow. Yeah, the surf was fun today. Yeah? The surf forecast said it's one foot and pretty ordinary, so I figured that it was wrong. Right. So, unfortunately, I got that right.
0: So, what, <laughs> what were you surfing today?
1: Um, got it. I surfed my, my favorite... I've got a board from a local shaper here called Mauricio Gill. It's my favorite little 5'5". Okay. 21.5 liter board. Yeah. So, it's tiny, but it fa- it goes fast. Yeah. So, I surf for about an hour and a half. It's For me, it's a luxury to have the time to surf without any restrictions. Yeah, sure. So...
0: After competing for so long, I guess. Yes. Yeah. And
1: everything's done by time.
0: Yeah, right. So, what's a typical day for you these days? There isn't one. No? Surf every day, though? I do. Yeah?
1: Yes. Sometimes I take a day off here and there, but... Predominantly, I, my intention is to surf every day. Yeah. It's uh, The ocean and immersing myself in it, it brings me to life. It brings a dose of perspective and balance and happiness to my life. So I make always make the time to go and dive in the ocean because yeah. um, as a motivational speaker, it's my job to inspire and empower people and I feel the best. Best way for me to do that authentically is to inspire and empower myself before I go on stage. Okay, so for that That's interesting. to do to achieve that, it means immersing myself in nature. If I'm nowhere near the beach, then I'll go and walk barefoot in the grass or sit in the sun for five minutes. But as long as I get some fresh air and a healthy dose of nature,
0: so it's something that you consciously try and fit into every day.
1: I don't try. You I do. consciously you, fit into. You, my you make every. it happen. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, because when you understand your values and you live according to them, then life's a little easier.
0: Yeah. And was that, was that something that you've always been that aware of? Hell no. No? No.
1: <laughs> no. I've, I was pretty unconscious as an athlete. Right. Uh, you know, I was very fierce, very driven. It wasn't until after I won my sixth world title did I start to become a little more aware. Okay. Self-aware and consciously aware of my actions. I mean, to a degree, I had some sense of awareness because I remember when I was, gosh, I must have been about 20. Okay. And... I was competing – I'd started competing when I was about 16, but I was competing full-time by the time I was 20. And I remembered people started to – because start to mention the fact that they'd seen me somewhere or were watching me, and I thought, well, what kind of role model do I want to be? Really? If people are starting to look up to me and starting to recognise my behaviours and and watching me perform, then I started to become conscious of the kind of role model I wanted to become. Right. And then when I was competing down at Bells many years later, I was probably twenty three or four by this stage. I remember coming out of the water feeling deeply despondent, distressed, upset, as some athletes, you know, when we have a, a crushing defeat, yeah. um, you want to take it out on your equipment and yeah, sure. everybody else. And I remember the heat before me when one of the guys lost and he started bashing his board against the, the scaffold of the judging tower. Right. I thought that's not a good demonstration of sportsmanship. Right. <laughs> but when I came out of the water the next heat and lost, I felt like I was going to do the, exactly the same thing. But then I remembered about how I felt seeing him do that. Right. And I thought, well, what if kids who look up to me saw me do that? Okay. That wouldn't be a good role model, a, a, a good demonstration of yeah, behavior. Sure. So I actually walked up to my car and just bawled my eyes out, right. just away from everybody. Okay. And then, um, and then a, a contest director was walking up the, the car park with his three-year-old on his shoulders and his three-year-old was chucking the tantrum that I wanted to, to right. display. Yeah. And I went, that's exactly how I feel. Thank you for displaying it on my behalf. And then not five minutes later, half a dozen teenage girls came running up to me saying, Lane, Lane, we've been waiting all day for you. We'd love your autograph. And I thought, I would have let them down.
0: Yeah, right, if they'd have seen that. If they'd
1: have seen that. Yeah, yeah. So, was yeah. It,
0: so when you set yourself that standard... And that's quite an early age. I mean, you said you were 20. Mm. Was it, that must have been difficult to live up to as well as being the competitor that you were.
1: Yes. And that's part of the, part of the driving force of me. Um, My expectations are very lofty. Of yourself. Of myself. And no one could place higher expectations on me than me. Okay. So when I came out of the water after a loss, I was bitterly disappointed and would obviously, more often than not break down really and my competitors judged that as poor sportsmanship but they didn't realize the the amount of expectation and pressure that i'd put on myself and when i started surfing and winning and uh and winning world titles that's when it got even more intense it actually got worse and i was i had a boyfriend guy called ken bradshaw who was very committed to my success Uh, so whenever I lost I felt like I'd let him down as well as myself and there's nothing worse than feeling like you've let someone else down
0: so when you first started competing and that's really interesting did you imagine that success in that realm would would, um, probably the wrong phrase to use but solve that problem almost did you think you would get the satisfaction that you were that was driving that you were looking for that was driving you
1: at the time probably
0: but then it didn't happen and you were just driven for to further achievements
1: absolutely okay. and so that's when you have to ask yourself when is enough ever enough yeah and after six world titles i decided i write them enough but Re- that
0: after the, but you still won one more and you still went back and compete. the seventh
1: one was won in a completely different mindset
0: okay that's so, interesting yeah because the six were consecutive right yes
1: yeah and this those first six were won predominantly in a state of fear wow Whereas the seventh one was one in a state of love. So the, so understanding what's driving your behaviours doesn't normally become apparent or clear until after you've achieved. Um, when I won my first world title, I became aware of the fact that I feared success.
0: You feared success, yeah. even though that's what was driving you? Yes. <laughs> well, okay. Yeah,
1: I'm a complex human being. Yeah,
0: yeah, well, no, it's just really interesting <laughs> because I think obviously being in that arena in that position that you're putting yourself in as a competitor, yeah. you, you have to face these things that I think everybody's aware of to a certain degree, but they don't really have to face day to day. But mm-hmm. when you're in that arena, you have to face it. And yes. you have to, if, if, you, if you don't face it, you won't succeed, will you? So No,
1: but then people that aren't aware of the fact that they have to face it will never face it and yeah. then they'll fall short and then they'll lay the blame.
0: So that m- sounds quite lonely. It is. If you don't mind me saying so. 100%. That sounds like it, because, you know, on the face of it, you think, okay, six consecutive world titles, seven world titles, by any measure, that's success. Yeah. But you didn't enjoy it.
1: I did, at moments of enjoyment. Okay. Yeah, so, what? because my attitude was so fierce, and because my uh, expectations were so high, it led me to... An emotional roller coaster. Yeah. So the highs were super high and the lows were super low. There was no level planning. There was no plateauing. There was no um, consistency of joy. Okay. Right. I depleted all of that.
0: And were you aware of that at the time? No. So that was just the, the way that, that was it just, was. That was
1: the way it was. That's yeah. why. I, that was the way I thought I had to win. See, when I I had placed these uh, expectations on becoming the best in the world as me needing or the requirement was to number one, be fiercely driven. Number two hate your competition. Right. <laughs> and number three, work harder than anybody else. Which
0: is I am sorry to interrupt you, but that is the theme that is consistent in everybody that I've interviewed. Really? And yeah. Oh good,
1: I'm not that abnormal then.
0: The the work ethic <laughs> is everybody that I interview is just like, Well, it's obvious you work you work you work harder than, than the other the other guy or the other girl to, to achieve that.
1: Absolutely. But my, my mentality also is there's a difference between working hard and hard work. Yeah, sure. And when you're working hard, the, everything seems hard. And, um, but when you're doing hard work, there's more enjoyment in it. So it's a matter of understanding, well, you're working hard for the sake of proving a point. Or are you investing in hard work because of the intrinsic motivation to establish or create the outcome that you're looking for?
0: Right. And which was it in your case?
1: For well, Originally, it was working hard. Yeah. And then it became hard work.
0: So where where do you think this ferocious work ethic came from? Being adopted. Okay. Because you've talked about that a lot. Yeah. I've, I've, in researching this, I've seen that that's something you've discussed quite openly.
1: Yes. So being adopted... And it, was, it didn't become apparent until after I won my six full title either. You know, I remember someone introducing me to Louise Hay back in my 20s and I just thought, what a crock of shit. Really? <laughs> yeah. Right. How, how can someone cut me off in traffic and I'm supposed to express love and share love with them? Like what a load of bullshit. And then I realised the importance of actually centering yourself in love and gratitude and acceptance and, and foregoing judgment and allowing joy. But I was foregoing joy or foreboding joy um, and replacing it with judgment. Okay. So <laughs> I didn't become aware of that until after I decided that I was enough, which was by winning six world titles. And what drove that ferocity, that that fierce, tenacious, competitive-driven human being was my necessity to prove to the world that I was deserving of love, which all came back to when my dad told me I was adopted, I had decided that I was undeserving of love.
0: Right, as, a, as an abandonment thing, yeah. presumably. So, so you, you were looking for that sense of belonging that you that you didn't have in surfing in the competitive arena
1: yes which is what we're all looking for as human beings yeah there's no deeper sense of desire in any of us than yeah. the desire to belong somewhere
0: okay so what at what moment did you start to obviously you've done a lot of soul searching to reach these you know really clear this really clear perspective mm. and these conclusions at what and you, you're placing it at the time of after your sixth world, world title so what was it that Made you undergo this process where you thought, actually, I need to look at this and, and perhaps change?
1: My body broke down. Okay. My body said no more. Right. Um, I was completely exhausted. I had depleted myself of all adrenaline, all energy. Um, and I, I still had the desire to succeed. I still had the desire to compete. And I still had the ability to stay at the top. But okay. my body just didn't want to borrow it. But
0: your previous approach wasn't going to work
1: it was unsustainable yeah and so sooner or later i mean that's why my analogy is that retail precincts have stock take sales because you stop and reflect you see what's working you see what isn't you change what isn't you get rid of what isn't and do something different whereas human beings we tend to believe we'd rather be right than happy and so what we do is we invest in what we know because it makes us right and then we validate ourselves and whether it's sustainable or not, it doesn't matter because we're right. And so I was right for those 18 years on tour. Yeah. And then uh, all of a sudden my body went, well, actually no, it was 16 years on tour. And then my body went, actually, that's not going to be sustainable any longer. So, so if you're not going to start listening to your own mind, then your body will let you know that what's going on is not, is not serving you anymore. But so a lot how, of us actually just don't listen at all.
0: No. So how did you change your approach?
1: I did a lot of soul searching. I did a lot of emotional work. Um, the year before I won my first world title, I did a, bir- a rebirthing or a breathe session. And that session presented a really uh, powerful source of information, which was the fact that I had a choice. Okay. I had a choice to determine what I focused my attention on. And at the time, I was focusing my attention on what I didn't want and then wondering why I was manifesting a whole lot of it. And then I had to change my focus of attention. So then I started focusing on what I did want. And what I did want was to be the best in the world um, and to be the best of the best in the world. Then when I achieved that, I realized that that focus of attention was done at all costs. So then when I came back and won my seventh one, I had changed my focus of attention, not on what I wanted, not on what I didn't want, but who I wanted to be.
0: Well, one of the quotes I wrote on your blog I'm oh, gonna, yeah? was, uh, I'm defined by the person I choose to be, mm. I, I guess, which is what you're talking about. Well, I'm about. glad I'm
1: consistent with that. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. That, and,
0: and in, in the article, which I'll put a link to, you, you, you talk about this process of how... Yeah, you know, you, you assimilated these experiences to, to reach a point where you were like, actually I can change this. Yes. Did you notice a difference in the way you were perceived? Yes by by by, by peers and, and the uh, industry? Yeah, and
1: it took a while for people to actually trust it.
0: Really? Yeah. What well, they thought And it, it took
1: a while for me to trust it. They too. thought it
0: was what, another tactic?
1: Yeah, another tactic. Really? Yeah, just another ploy by Lane.
0: Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs>
1: I can be a bit of a trickster. You know, I used to talk to my competition in the water to distract them a little and <laughs> you go to right. all lengths. But um, it took time for me to trust it and that was more important to me than than how I was going to be perceived by my peers. And that, that took a lot for me also because you want to be respected and revered by your peers. And sure. When I won in the following year, see 2004 was the year after my sixth world title and I didn't win an event until the last event of the year. And I was standing on the podium and Sofia Milanovic had just won her first world title and everyone was celebrating her first world title but because I'd won the event at the same day, the commentator asked me, Lane, is this bittersweet? And I said, there's no bitterness about it. This is absolutely sweet. You know, Sofia is just a an icon. She's going to be a super legend in her country she's fulfilling a whole lot of dreams and aspirations on behalf of her nation you know this is amazing and the fact that i won the last event is you know icing on the cake and when i walked into the party after that my peers stood up and applauded me right And i thought oh wow how
0: did that feel
1: Oh, it brought me to tears. Because really? I thought, wow, I'm being recognized and celebrated by my peers. I'd never felt that before, yeah. except after I won my first world title, I was recognized and celebrated. Yeah. And then you've got the tall poppy syndrome in this country where, okay, you've had your success. Well,
0: especially in surfing. Piss off. Get yeah. out. Next. Yeah. <laughs> Aussie surfing tall poppy syndrome, yeah. particularly acute case. Yes, can you
1: hear that in the background? Yeah, it's fine. Don't worry. like I can ask my neighbour to stop building.
0: No, 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 it's fine.
1: Surely it's the weekend, buddy. Come on, have a break.
0: It's the twenty third of December. <laughs> yeah, I can't. He's a no, good no, neighbour. I can tell him to stop. It's fine. It's fine. If he starts drilling, we can, we can, uh, we can worry about it then. Um,
1: okay, as long as it's not annoying everybody.
0: No, it'd be fine. Also, okay. we can we can probably edit it out. So All right, fine. sweet. Um, <laughs> one of the other questions I was going to ask you is. Um, You've talked a lot about the personal difficulties, but is it fair to say there were also outside difficulties being a woman in your position in surfing during the years you were surfing? Yeah. So what, what did they look <laughs> like? Where
1: lo- would you like me to start what with did, What
0: did they look like?
1: Well, they were personal too. Uh, achieving a sense of belonging in the ocean is is one thing, but achieving a sense of belonging amongst your male counterparts is incredibly challenging
0: and was that there from the start that was always a battle that you had to fight
1: that was a battle i had to fight ever since i started surfing as a four-year-old at manly right the most appropriately named beach in the world
0: <laughs> which is pretty funny because we just drove over here with my niece oh He's yes seven and she said is manly manly so there you go there's the 100%. answer Hundred percent.
1: and that it was named after the aboriginal guys that were standing on the on the foreshore and captain cook went they look very manly.
0: Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. So
1: they called it manly.
0: Okay, <laughs> and it's dark. Yeah. Um, so what? How did that manifest then?
1: As far as the challenges. Well,
0: yeah, you're talking about. So I that.
1: believed when I joined the when I joined the the lineup, which is where you paddle out and sit waiting for a wave. Yeah, sure. As a four year old, I'd looked around and I thought, well, I'm the only girl out here. So to prove to these guys that I deserve to be here, I'm going to overcompensate. I'm going to outsurf them. I'm going to be better than them. I'm going to fight them. I'm going to stand up for myself. I'm going to challenge them, and I'm going to give back as good as they give me.
0: Can't imagine that went down well.
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> However, I, that, I earned my space. But you
0: had that in you from that young age. Yeah. Well, right. I grew
1: up in a male-dominated household. I mean, okay. my mum died when I was six. Yeah. And um, so I had my older brother and my dad and. And the male-dominated environment being the only girl on the water at yeah. Manly. And then the group of guys that I surfed with as a teenager, there was 14 of us and I was the only girl.
0: Really? Yeah. Right. So, I
1: tended to gravitate towards that environment and yeah. it actually suited me. I enjoyed being the single white female.
0: Okay. Why, why do you think that was?
1: <laughs> I think um, it was almost like I had, well, it's ego-driven. I'd validated myself. Yeah. Again, you know? <laughs>
0: this, this search for kind of…
1: Search for validation.
0: Self-validation and belonging. Yeah. Right.
1: So, I wonder how people do that in their day-to-day lives. Yeah. How they're validating themselves in the environments that they've chosen to be in. Or whether they feel like they've made a choice.
0: I imagine most people don't feel like they've made a choice. So, what about when you began your career as a competitor and a professional surfer? Did you also come up against a similar level of difficulty in the industry?
1: Industry, competitors, male counterparts, the whole deal. Yeah. Yeah. the industry was tough because there wasn't one when I started competing. I was going
0: to say the women's industry was very uh, embryonic, wasn't it? Very, then, really?
1: yeah. They haven't really started till the uh, early 90s when yeah. Roxy came to the fore. And then Billabong followed suit and then Rip Curl followed. And, um, yeah, I was sponsored by Quicksilver for many years before they turned into Roxy or before they created Roxy. And I was earning – I was number two in the world behind Lisa Anderson. Yeah. And I was earning $8,000 a year right, from my primary sponsor. <laughs> it's loaded. Wow, that's <laughs> rolling in it. And, um, and so they said, well, listen, you're number two, you're living in Lisa's shadow. So until you become number one, we're not going to pay you what we think you're worth. And right. so that's when I went, well, I don't want to be number two. I mean, my whole, my whole premise of focus and direction and everything is committed to becoming number one. And yeah. I feel like I'm number two all the time. So that's when I split and went to Billabong and became yeah. the number one girl. And and, um, and then won six world titles under their banner f- in, the, in the next eight years. And, um, but I had my challenges with the industry. I sat on the board of directors for 15 years and just I was the only girl on an all-man board, 14 guys in the, in the room and me. And there was, noth- there was a lot of sexist, draconian, just pathetic behaviour around the board table that was just totally unacceptable. However, I just had to endure it. Right. And it made it very challenging to stand up and fight. Yeah. Because their constant argument was well, you're not worth it. You don't add any value.
0: Even after you'd won six, six world titles. Six world titles. Yeah. The, what do you think they expected of you, or do you think it would just. I would, don't know. It was just they
1: expected me to be a man,
0: basically yeah you're not a man you're not a man
1: you're not worth it you know we pay our men this much and we give our men this and this and this but you're a girl
0: did you find that with the media as well
1: to a degree but I didn't fall for it in the media right because one of the journalists labelled me the Quasby. it stands for (laughs) Queen of Self Promotion Wow. And so I wouldn't wait for the journalist to call me and say, hey, what's going on? I, I would call th- them.
0: I wonder what he thinks of Instagram.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: Is he on Instagram?
1: Oh, uh, I should find out. You should
0: find out. Yeah. 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 You can, is it, there's a nice hashtag.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I'll call him um, – well, he could still be a queen. <laughs> 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 I'll call him Cosby, the king right. of self-promotion. <laughs> but you still, you
0: still had to fight on yeah. that level as well. To yeah.
1: So I, for me, I felt like it was a constant fight from – The industry support to the the governing bodies support to peer support. I mean, the girls, there was very little opportunity, very little money, so we were out to get whatever we could for ourselves. There was very little camaraderie. And then to our male counterparts who would actually – protest if we were sent out in waves that were better than theirs right if it's turned to shit send the girls out that was just the common mentality and that's what we actually came to expect and we accepted it and if ever we fought against it if ever we for once in a in a blue moon would unite and say no we're not surfing then the contest director if it was a quicksilver or a roxy event would actually go up to the roxy girls and say if you don't surf we'll drop you
0: right wow so it seems remarkable really doesn't it yeah that that Do you think it's changed?
1: Mm, Dramatically. Yeah. They wouldn't tolerate that kind of behavior. Sure. It's become a lot more professional. I mean, it took me 19 years on tour to earn half a million dollars in prize money. Right. And today, the girls can earn that in one year on tour. Yeah, yeah. So, it's a totally different playing field. It's a different environment. I'm seeing – like yesterday, I was at a press conference and Cooper Chapman – was we were talking about the fact that we just got this Sydney Pro back on in Manly because we lost the Australian Open and we yeah. were really disappointed to lose that event because it's a huge economic um, investment into the community, yeah. but also it's a great opportunity for the local surfers. And Cooper was saying, You know, I was disappointed, but I was actually more disappointed for my sister because she'd won the state, the national title, she she'd turned the wild card into an event and now it was no longer there. And I'm thinking, That never would have happened in my day. Right. There's no way. You know too many of the guys would have sat next to me and saying you know i'm really I'm really sorry for Gidget, which is what they used to call me, really, but you know she's missing out an wow. opportunity so <laughs> I mean, what you focus on expands maybe there i mean I always know that there was guys who I refer to as my honesty barometers who who were elevating and supportive and and diffused a lot of the negativity and and supported me along the way, but there was Three times as many dream thieves and life vampires who right. told me that I was never going to make it. Yeah. So, But today you see dads pushing their daughters into the water, brothers supporting their sisters. Um, there was at least a dozen girls in the water this morning. Sometimes the girls outnumber the guys. Yeah, yeah. You know, that never actually occurred in my day. Uh,
0: you must be proud of Very proud. Of, I don't
1: want to have to have gone through all of that shit and then it would amount to nothing. Yeah. So I'm really grateful that the WSL came and bought the women's tour and have invested millions of dollars into it to ensure that the girls have an equal playing field. Yeah. I'm grateful that the industry has embraced women and, and not just in a way where it sexualizes them. I'm grateful that it's okay to be strong and powerful yeah. and be a woman and embrace your femininity at the same time.
0: And the general backlash when, when they do put a foot wrong these days the brands with like you know they have campaigns there's been a couple in recent years hasn't there where yeah and they've been caned you know yes. the, the backlash has been
1: so uh, the, to a degree that's the advantage of social media yeah yeah you know, it's yeah. a lot more transparent yeah you can't get away with that kind of behavior anymore.
0: no no and people will call you out on it yeah which is good so what i mentioned earlier that you you've been really open about telling the stories of, of as you are being with me today about your career and the struggles that you face so is is, is that a conscious decision? to try and help people coming through?
1: It's a conscious decision to let people know they're not alone. Yeah. I know when I when I shared my challenges, it made people realize that their challenges are valid and relevant to them and also that they're not isolated in that incidence. When my husband was diagnosed with prostate cancer, I encouraged him to talk about it. Yeah. He shared his story in the newspaper and a friend of mine said, my two mates were going in for surgery the following week and actually uh, – got more out of that interview than they had their own doctors. So Yeah. So when you share your challenges, when you share your your setbacks and obstacles, it actually demonstrates a a strength in your vulnerability because you're accepting and it also lets people know that what they're going through is very valid and that you don't have to isolate yourself just because you're in a state of challenge. Yeah. So, yeah, I love to share my challenges because – I'm not the only one that's been through this stuff, but I might be the only one that's willing to talk about it. And then you become a pillar of hope. I don't like using that word very often because a lot of people stay stuck in a life of hope and hope means that there's heaps of plausible excuses as to why you're stuck. You might get the acronym there. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And
1: that it's only going to, the only thing that's going to change your current circumstances is external. And so you need to become an intrinsic or a, um, an internal accountability partner for you to change something. So people stay stuck in that life of hope, which defers dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction is the precursor to change. Yep. So I say s- s- get out of hope and get dissatisfied. So if, if my willingness to share my issues and challenges and setbacks and pains and sufferings and struggles diffuses hope and makes people start taking action, yep. then it was worth it.
0: Yeah, which brings me quite nicely to your post-competitive surf career, yep. which is you're a speaker, um, you've got the foundation, mm-hmm. which is all basically these following these themes through, isn't it? So yes. could you explain a little bit about the foundation?
1: So my foundation was set up back in 2003 and the whole premise was to prevent girls from quitting, Okay, to stop them from giving up on themselves, to stop them from giving up on their on their dreams because your dreams never give up on you. And for some reason we all have these grand aspirations when we're kids to – have the courage to dream big and ask for help. And then when we, as we become older and wiser, we become conditioned by consequence, conditioned by fear, worried about what people think uh, and we lose our focus and then therefore we, we, we settle. And I didn't ever settle and I'm one of those very fortunate few that never gave up on my dream no matter how hard it got. So the foundation was to ensure that the women following through in my footsteps and in all endeavours uh, have the pillars of support and the network of support financially and morally to achieve whatever it is they want to achieve in their lives because we hold up half the sky but we certainly have less than half the opportunity and so it's really important that girls realize that they have that network of support and unfortunately that doesn't seem to be the case in in today's society so and the premise of it Upon reflection, came back to one night after work at, at the old Manly Boat Shed, which is a very salubrious establishment yeah, in Manly. Sure. Yeah. Um, it, I used to work three or four nights a week down there from six at night till four in the morning, and or three in the morning. And at four in the morning, my employer said, Listen, I see you, I hear you, I believe in you. That was, I mean, that was kind of how I felt when he said to me, I see how hard you're working, and I know how much you want this, and I believe in you. And here's $3,000, here's your wow. next round the world air ticket. And that was a catalyst for change amazing so it made me realize that sometimes you don 't know who 's watching you don 't know who 's listening, and uh, you 've just got to stay true to yourself and and um, and also have the courage to ask for help yeah and that 's what aim for the stars is all about
0: so what kind of think, what kind of people or projects have you backed
1: huh well, uh, fourteen years where do i start there 's yeah. been, been hundreds of yeah. girls so Marine biologists, heart research scientists, Olympic athletes. Brilliant. Human rights lawyers, body image activists, oh gosh, yeah. just incredible dreams, you know, from a, a trapeze artist, really? for example, okay. who who we gave, so in the first probably 10 years, we gave $3,000 grants just to you know, stay with the story. But nice now bit we've, of
0: synchronicity. Yes, definitely. but now we've
1: gone, you know, it's CPI, the girls need a little bit more cash, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. let's give them a little bit more money. And uh, we gave her $3,000, she went to Montreal thanks to our grant and won two gold medals. Wow. But what was so significant about that was not only the fact that she couldn't have gone without our support, but she was headhunted by Cirque du Soleil and now performs worldwide. Amazing. Yeah. Okay. So my whole, the whole message about the Lane Beachley Foundation is don't underestimate the impact you can have on someone's life. Yeah. You, we all tend to believe that unless it's life-changing, it's not important. But it doesn't have to change the world to be important. Three thousand dollars changed my life. Three thousand dollars changed her life. Four thousand dollars actually changed the life of this young girl called Napuni, who we supported this year. Who's from her family are from Pakistan, but she set up a business in Canberra because her sister has cerebral palsy, or Down syndrome actually, and. She was really concerned that she could never find meaningful employment. So she set up a business called GG's Flowers and Hampers that provides meaningful employment for people with special needs. And she came to our annual fundraising gala in Sydney. She shared her story. The GM of Flight Centre Australia was in the room. And he said, well, we send out 1,500 hampers a year. So he went up to her and said, can you do 1,500 by Christmas? She um, went, sure. Amazing. So he just tripled the size of her business right. in one order. Brilliant. Yeah. All thanks to $4,000.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. And another milestone, obviously, for you is your chair of Surfing Australia.
1: Yeah, that was a big one.
0: Yeah, that must have been. So, are you the first um, female chair of that organization? Yes. I was the
1: first female board member and then I got catapulted into the first female position of chair. I'm the first female former world champion of any sport to take on the role of chair in any national sporting
0: Wow, organization. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, what does that entail? That well, it role? means
1: learning on a very steep curve.
0: Yeah. Is that, is that a full-time role?
1: <laughs> it's a full-time pro bono role. Okay. And uh, it's teaching me more about business than anything has ever taught me. I mean, I've failed in business many times. Right. But uh, this is teaching me a lot about governance and relationships and communication and strategy and all those things that you learn from, from business. So, I remember when I was first offered the role, I immediately, almost in a a state of defiance, um, I remember putting my hands under the table going, no way, it's called a chairman for a reason, and then I had to just walk away from there and just go and t- take five minutes to just ask myself, why would I say no? Because it's something actually I really want to do, but why am I talking myself out why, of it?
0: Why do you think that was? Well, You're I was a woman. Overwhelmed by the the scale of it?
1: No, not at all. I didn't even think about the scale of right. it. I just came up with all the reasons, all the excuses, right? right? You made the all excuses. the heaps of plausible excuses as yeah. to why I couldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was a woman, didn't have the time, didn't have the knowledge, didn't have the resources. And so the only way that you can get past that is to ask yourself, what do you have? And firstly, I said, well, if it's something I want to do, I'll make the time. Yeah. Secondly, I have three executive chairmen on my board who I can tap into at any stage. You've
0: got the network. I've
1: got the network. And then finally, I have the confidence of my whole board of directors for me to do this role. So why am I talking myself out of it? Right. So I went, all right, I'll do it, but I'm going to need your help, your deputy chair. These are my weaknesses. These are my fundamental flaws. Right. And then where do we go from here? And how's it been? Amazing. Yeah. I've loved every minute of it. I've been thrown under the bus a few times. Right. And I've relished in it.
0: So what kind of work does that organization carry out?
1: Well, we are, I mean, our whole mission is to, pre- hello bird, is, yeah, to, um, <laughs> is to create a healthier and happier Australia through surfing. Right. And so we are a developmental pathway of programs from 5 to 12-year-olds in our Surf Groms program all the way through to creating the High Performance Centre, yep. which is the only surf-focused centre the, in the world, okay. high-performance centre in the world. And then in the middle, we've got um, professional programs. We've got the Australian Boardwriters Battle, which is all about building capacity in, within boardwriters clubs, yep. which if you look on the Australian sea, eastern coast, actually the whole of Australia, nearly, I'd say, every world champion that's come out of Australia was groomed through a boardwriters club. Really?
0: Okay. Yeah. So. Mick, Mick Fanning talked a lot about the importance of that. Yes. Growing up as as a as an outlet for him for yep. sure.
1: Yeah. And you'd say the same for Steph, Paco, um, me. You know, yep. I came out through Queenscliff Boardwalks Club once yep. I had the courage to to join the okay. club because I was I think I'm the only girl like again. Yeah, yeah. Right. So I had to compete against the boys, which right. I loved. Um. So yeah, we've got all these programs, and then we've got a digital asset, and then we've also got. Um, the Olympics coming up in 2020.
0: Yeah, right. So you're involved in that. So yes, I was going to ask you about that. What's your view on that then? I'm very excited. by You are. You're, you're positive. Very. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's a tremendous opportunity for the sport.
0: Yeah. So it, why do you think that?
1: Well, it's going to open us up to a whole new audience. How do
0: you, How do you feel about the um, concerns about communicating? You know, the essence of surfing, style. The you know the the right. If face gymnastics of can do it, we
1: can do it. Yeah. If diving can do it, we can do it. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of subjectivity, but there's also a lot of objectivity. Yeah. And so it's a matter of removing those things out of it and just allowing the athlete to actually portray or communicate those things. I mean, people perceive it the way they want to perceive it. I don't think any communication or commentary about it will change the way that they perceive it so it's actually just a matter of just demonstrating this is who we are this is what we do this is the beauty of the sport it's the freedom of individual expression yeah it's creative there's no two waves the same there's no two surfers the same there's no two boards the same yeah so it's a matter of just uh, learning to adapt to that and allowing the flow and the freedom of that to be portrayed in the way The best way possible.
0: So part of your work is to help put in the infrastructure that will take Australians to the Olympics.
1: Absolutely. And that's why we've just expanded. We're currently building, we're tripling um, or quadrupling our high-performance centre in size to uh, take on that audacious goal of winning gold in Tokyo.
0: And will will you use existing infrastructure then? And and channel it into this new outcome, if you like? Yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So you're busy.
1: Yeah. bit on.
0: A lot going on. My
1: dance card's full.
0: Yeah. Definitely. Yeah.
1: So, you know, I've got you know, charity, speaking, board roles, and then the other 100% of the time I'm surfing.
0: Yeah. And so what? what's your speaking career? Is this for, for different companies, organizations?
1: Yeah. Predominantly corporates. Okay. A couple of schools, a few lunches and things like that. Yeah. But predominantly corporates around the world.
0: How do you find that? I love it. Do you enjoy that?
1: Yeah. Well, I love sharing stories. Yeah, another
0: opportunity. I to... can't
1: believe that I get paid to talk about myself. Yeah. Like, I used to be- – couldn't believe that I – couldn't get i mean i can't believe i used to get paid to go surfing yeah now i get paid to talk about how i succeeded in the surf world
0: and was that post-surf career something that you always had in mind well that's a difficulty for athletes isn't it yeah the transition yeah it's huge it's a huge it took me thing, four isn't
1: years it? to embrace it
0: did you get those opportunities as you throughout your career anyway you've been asked to speak and you've been asked to tell your stories and you kind of thought ah, oh, well maybe i could or was it a bit more mm-hmm. planned
1: I feel like I fell into the speaking career, even yeah. though I've always been a storyteller. So I'm const- constantly asked this question, like, how did you become a speaker? And it was almost like a a result of my success because when you become successful, everybody wants to know how you did it. Yeah. And so it was just up to me to take the time to break that down. Okay. In a way that people can relate to. Yeah. So when I was... Um, when I was about 22, I was training with some rugby league players okay. and they were from the Parramatta Eels and so it was the NRL, the National Rugby League Competition Yeah. and after training with them for a, few, for a few months, because I got to know them, I thought I'd like to really support these guys because I know how hard they work, I know how much they want it, uh, I know a lot about them so I can relate to them so therefore I want to support them. So then it dawned on me, well, if actually people can relate to me because they know a bit about me, then that'll give them reason to support me. So that's when I went on this quest to start sharing my stories with the world. Okay. And so now I reflect on that period of my life. That was kind of like my training to become the storyteller that I am today. Yeah. Also because I – was winning so consistently, I had to find a way to tell the same story in different ways. Yeah, right. Because I got bored with my own story.
0: <laughs> Wheeling out the same yeah. stories, I mean, yeah.
1: And I got bored with the questions I was being asked too. Right. You know, got to the point about the fifth world title when someone came up to me just after I'd won it said, how does it feel? Yeah, right. I'm like, fuck, do you think you could put some effort <laughs> into that question? Yeah. <laughs> like, how do you think it feels? Yeah. Here you go. Don't ever aspire to greatness. Don't ever dream big. Don't ever achieve it because it's not worth it. Yeah. Like, how do you think it feels? <laughs> Jesus, woman. Put some thought into it. So, yeah, it made me realize that the whole reason people ask you questions is they want a story. They yeah. don't actually care what the story is. They just want a story. Well,
0: people want, like you said, that's obviously what you realize. People want your insights.
1: They want your insights. Yeah, they want so your I'd version. S- I'd sit in the water during a heat yeah. knowing that I'm going to win it yeah. halfway through it and go, okay, what story am I going to tell when I get out of the water? Right. Something that I know that they didn't see. You okay. know, whether it was a dream I had last night yeah. about this whole event, or whether it was something that happened when I was a kid, or whether I saw a shark or a dolphin or yeah. a turtle, or like let's bring some life to it.
0: Yeah. Okay. One of the other questions I wanted to ask you uh, relates to your surfing because you know you were you are a pioneer of big wave surfing as well. So you surfed outside log cabins, um, Waimea
1: sun- Pipeline, sunset sunset
0: hours as hours. Well. Yeah. Yeah. So, that
1: was a death wish, that wave.
0: Yeah, I, I watched that. I'm going to put the like, leg. I did not look like a, I mean, was it fun? I mean, it looked terrifying. No,
1: it's terrifying. Yeah,
0: it looked absolutely terrifying. Yeah,
1: I remember when I'd let go of the tow rope and stood in the barrel and I just looked up at it and went, I'm dead. Really? That was the first thought that came to mind. <laughs> I'm dead. And then I thought, well, I might as well enjoy the view while I'm here. And while I'm enjoying the view, I'm going to keep looking for a way out of this. Right. And then the, the phone ball picked me up and spat me out.
0: Yeah, I mean, great exit. Yeah. Brilliant.
1: Yeah. I, the whole way, I did not look like I knew what I was doing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, But I surrendered.
0: Yeah. So, uh, was, so, what era was this when you start Was this after your competitive career? Yeah,
1: I did ours in 20, 2009. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, after I retired... I uh, I still had the competitive juices flowing. So I set this goal to do one physical challenge a year. Okay. So in 2009, I did Dancing with the Stars. 2010, how I did – was that? Oh, God. That was – that taught me a lot about self-sabotage.
0: Really? Yeah. Right.
1: <laughs> because no matter how much training and preparation you put into something, if you then walk into the environment that you're prepared to perform in and you all of a sudden worry about what everyone's thinking – you are in a state of self-sabotage. Yeah, everything that you do from then on is subconsciously sabotaged.
0: Presumably, not something you had to worry yourself with with surf competitive I surfing. I did in the
1: first seven years of my career. Right. It wasn't until I started, you know, the the year of nineteen ninety eight. Yeah, yeah. I eliminate my concern with what people were thinking. Yeah. I detach from that.
0: But you had the confidence in you in your yes. ability. Yeah. I guess is what I mean. Through whereas, my
1: lessons and experiences.
0: W- whereas with this, oh, I had no confidence experience. in my ability. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah.
1: So. I was worried that you thought that I thought I was a good dancer. Yeah. And prevent you from thinking that I'm going to sabotage my performance to make sure you don't think I'm any better well, than mean what that, I am.
0: That's why it's really hard to, to get good at anything because that, that little voice of self-doubt is, is always there to a certain degree, isn't it? Yes, it and, is. And it's how much you can conquer that really. Yeah. That was one of the physical challenges that you decided to set yourself mm. And then Sydney
1: to Hobart was the second year.
0: Oh, really? Yep. Wow, how was that? That
1: was a great weight loss program, but very unsustainable. Because <laughs> we were in the second worst year in history in 2010. <laughs> Picked a good year. Yeah. Once again, only female in a 23-man crew. Wow. On a 100-foot super maxi.
0: Did you had any experience with that? Did I? Have any experience? of, of In sailing? Yeah.
1: Only on a 30-foot Beneteau? Okay.
0: So it's <laughs> in very flat water? Step it up.
1: Step. <clears throat> I love a challenge. Yeah. Uh, After eight hours on deck, I got sick. Right. Went down below for the next 36 and hurled for 36 hours straight. Wow. Came back up for 18 hours, completely dehydrated. Right. And celebrated with a bottle of champagne and a barbecue chicken.
0: Nice. Which must have been... (laughs) Balance. Yeah. Must have been the most satisfying uh, glass (laughs) of champagne in your life. Very satisfying at one o'clock in the morning after
1: having a horrendous trip. Uh, The following year... I did the World Masters Championships and I won those. So okay. I literally have two other world championships in the Masters yep. world titles. And then I also did the Weber Challenge, which was a five-day adventure race in Tasmania. Right. So after about five or six years of these physical challenges, I just went, all right, I'm done. So now I don't have that same level of expectation on myself. to, And I was utilizing those experiences or those challenges as – fodder or inspiration to stay in shape and train and be physically strong yeah now i don't have the same level of expectation on myself okay so i'm realizing as i'm getting older i'm i'm not lowering my standards but i'm lowering my expectations yeah
0: maybe it sounds like you're, you're giving yourself a little bit more slack yeah yeah
1: yeah I've become kinder to myself yeah
0: it sounds that way
1: yeah i'm getting more compassionate as i get older
0: we talked earlier about I never how thought that would happen <laughs> we we talked earlier about how there, there has been a positive change for, for women surfing and that does go for big wave surfing as well. Yeah. You know, there's more opportunities for women to, to, to compete in big wave. Do you think Exciting. that would have changed if that had been around when you were competing? Do you think you might have gone down that path?
1: Oh, I was I was adamant to go down that path. Yeah. I put my hand up to be the only female invited into the eddy. I, I loved surfing YMAO. Yeah. I loved the big waves. I, and I wasn't out there to prove it to anybody other than to just do it because I loved it. I right. love feeling fear. I love going fast. I love the adrenaline. Yeah. So, yeah, I would have been the first person to go, oh, pick me, pick yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> However, the opportunity wasn't there.
0: No. Again, it was a different time, wasn't it? So, mm. another, another area where you were blazing the trail, really.
1: Yeah. I was a pioneer in many ways. And um, my boyfriend had the mentality, my ex-boyfriend Ken had the mentality that pioneers perish.
0: Right, really? Yeah. Right.
1: That's the negative side. I, I believe pioneers prosper. Right. Because when you have a vision for yourself yeah. and you go ahead and achieve that vision you open up a pathway of opportunity for people to follow in your footsteps and you give them permission to believe that they can do it too. Yeah. And those two things are what it takes. Right. To achieve anything in life. Yeah, yeah. So first you have to provide the opportunity, second you have to believe that you can do it and then you have to give yourself permission to go after it. Yeah. And um, so I didn't wait for other women to give me permission or to provide the pathway. Yeah. I just decided that I was going to be that Trailblazer. Yeah. I don't know what drove that and I don't know why I chose that, but I just had a grand vision uh, for women's surfing and for myself and just went after it.
0: So given this career, storied career with all these achievements, what are you proudest of when you look back? My legacy. Okay. So how do you define that?
1: Well, I mean your legacy is defined by the choices that you make, the challenges you overcome and the people you shared it with. And so I think about the choices that I made as far as my career. You know, I, I easily could have given up a variety of times. There was three or four times when I was ready to quit. Right. And those moments of of doubt and second guessing were overcome because of the people I had in my life. You know, my personal trainer or my boyfriends or my surf coach or just the influential group of people I had around me and the law of proximity states you become the sum of the top five people you spend your time with. Yeah,
0: that is true. I spent my
1: time with some amazing people and I still do. I still choose very wisely. So I'm proud of the legacy because I know that by me pursuing my dream of becoming a world champion, I mean, I never in my wildest dreams thought that just becoming a world champion, which at the time was quite often... Um, discouraged right. by my teachers, my peers, really. my friends, my family.
0: What did they say? Oh, you well, my
1: teachers lock up Lane's board. It'll amount to nothing. It's a distraction from the studies. Wow. My peers, you're not good enough. Right. You know? So when you've constantly reassured that you're never going to make it. You can buy into that very easily. And that can become your reason as to why you never made it. Whereas I chose not to buy into it because I chose to surround myself with people who elevated me and supported me and nurtured me that didn't place the limitations and boundaries on me. I was doing enough of that myself. I didn't need external validation of that. I needed actually people to detract or distract me from that. And so now I know that by pursuing my dream, by fulfilling my dream, has provided this platform of opportunity for the current and future generations of surfers, not just women yeah. but of surfers. And uh, I'm extremely proud of that but and also the, the difference that I've made to women's lives through my foundation yeah. and then the opportunities that it's presented to me. The biggest mistake that we can get when we're pursuing a massive dream or a big vision is focusing solely on the cost of it. And uh, I find myself getting stuck in that state quite often now. Right. And I have to go back to what it took for me to win my seventh world title, which right. is gratitude and acceptance and love and joy and ease and effortlessness and trust.
0: So my final question, what ambitions do you have left?
1: I want to write another book. Okay. I need to do that. I want to do that. Yeah. I just don't make the time to do it.
0: What, what is it about that?
1: My life lessons in retirement, the transition
0: and that's the story that you really feel the urge to tell.
1: Yes, yeah. because I feel people yeah, people get inspired by people who are successful, but I believe people truly relate to the struggle. And I feel right now people are really stuck in struggle. Yeah. And it's all because we've come to trust in struggle. I mean, if I ask you if you believe do you believe success requires hard struggle, pain, suffering? And if you put your hand up, then what you're going to do is you're going to continue to find ways to seek proof of that. Yeah. Um, so I want to I help people through the struggle. I want to help people realize that there's a different way. And in the same way, it's going to help me realize there's a different way too. I mean, we all teach what we need to learn ourselves. Yeah. So one of the things I – one of my visions – one part of my vision is to write another book. And the second thing is to actually just open my mind – opportunity and I used to think when I because I'd created all the opportunities in my career I thought that the only way to succeed was by forcing it by doing it myself and uh, now I realize that when you stop feeling like you have to do it all and you open yourself to opportunity it can actually present a plethora of experiences to you so I mean there's yeah, there's a lot of things going on in my world that I'm really grateful for, but there's a lot of things in my world that I know I'm sabotaging my future success. And um, yeah, I need to take the time now while we've got this break to just open myself up to whatever my life looks like in the next 10 to 15 to 20 years. Yeah,
0: and move forward with this world this worldview that you've fought so hard to achieve, basically. By exactly, yeah.
1: yeah, that's it. So my model for success, for the final statement right yeah. now is to have that grand vision like what is it that you want today my vision is based on how i want to feel yeah. more so than what i want to achieve so that helps me make decisions every day so your vision becomes your accountability partner essentially secondly who's in your team who's going to help you achieve it who's your accountability partners who are your honesty barometers who's who's going to you know hold you responsible for achieving it when you kind of step out? I can always find excuses not to do something. It's easy as looking at the surf forecast. Yeah. And then finally, what actions are you taking daily to help you get closer to that vision? And if you're not taking daily actions to get closer to that vision, then you're not truly committed to achieving it or you're looking for excuses as to why you can't.
0: Well, Lane, I really enjoyed that. Thank you. That was great. Thanks for for having me.
1: You're very welcome. I trust your uh, listeners enjoyed it too.
0: Thank you. So there you go. That was my chat with Lane Beachley. And I told you that one was a real privilege. Since her retirement, Lane's obviously decided to be as open as possible about her personal and professional experiences to try and help others achieve their goals and fight their own demons or struggles. Yet another way in which this leader and visionary is pioneering on an emotional level in an effort to help others. And listening back to that chat, I really was struck by how much of a pioneer Lane's been over the years. Yeah, the competitive results are well known. But hearing about the daily struggles and the shit she put up with to achieve those goals and the way in which these have helped blaze the trail for the women coming along behind her really puts a lot of things into perspective. Add in a role as surf in Australia, and it sounds as if she isn't finished yet. So, yeah, thanks again, Lane, for taking the time to come on the show and for being so welcoming. So, there you go. That was episode 29. Next episode will be the final instalment of my Aussie Omnibus, recorded between Christmas and New Year's Eve 2017. And what a treat this one was, an audience with none other than the great Tom Carroll. Now, I'll explain in more detail how this one came about at the start of the next episode. But suffi- suffice to say that Tom Carroll, as everybody knows, is legit one of the greatest of all time. I mean, where do you start? The pipeline snap, his world titles, his fearsome longevity as a charger. There was almost too much to talk about, really. to keep him peeled for this one, with one of surfing's true legends, And as I discovered, a really generous, lovely man as well. So that's it for now. Thanks as ever for listening to and or downloading the show. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, use your request, share it on social, review me on iTunes. At the time of recording, I was on 97 five-star reviews on iTunes. So it'd be quite nice to mark 2018 by uh, hitting 100 if anyone's up for helping me with that. Or yeah, simply tell a mate, pass it on, which I know a lot of people have been doing, which is also very effective. Anyway, thanks again and until the next time, I'll see you later. Bye-bye.